0: Lord Jesus, we pray that you would use your words in scripture to help our words be more like your words so that we can glorify you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. A phrase that you are likely to overhear in the next couple of weeks is, don't tell me how it ends. Know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Harry Potter. Harry Potter. The last book was released yesterday, and I haven't seen my wife since. For ten years, millions of people have been wondering if, in the end, Harry is going to defeat the evil Lord Voldemort. And already, millions of people know the answer to that question because they finished reading the book. And if you know, stay away from me. Do not want to talk to you about Harry Potter. Because in less than one second... And two words, Harry lives, Harry dies. You could spoil ten years of anticipation. That's an example of the power of words. And that's what James is talking about in the passage that Rich just read. Our words are potent stuff. They can give joy or they can cause pain. They can build up or they can destroy a person, a child, a church, a community. So James said, be careful what you say. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this is one of those ouch passages that I wish wasn't in the Bible, especially since, as Rich so graciously pointed out, it it starts by saying you preachers are going to be held especially accountable. And for me, controlling my tongue has been something that I have had to work on my entire Christian life. It doesn't come naturally to me. I'm a wear it on my sleeve kind of a guy. So if the thought or the emotion occurs, it is spoken. Whether it needs to be or not. Not always a helpful thing for a pastor. And because I like the way language works, I find wit very fascinating, even if it's at someone else's expense. It's part of why I like Shakespeare so much. He had the best put-downs. Or Winston Churchill, the master. One time a woman said to him, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I'd poison your tea. And he said, Madam, if I was your husband, I'd drink it. (laughs) Now, I know what James says in that passage and all, but you just got to love that, right? I mean, the wit, aesthetically, it's just a thing of beauty. And then there's the whole profanity thing, which I've sort of inherited from my family. We Dudleys work in profanity the way other artists work in oil or watercolor. It's our true medium. So I've had to work very hard at all of this. And I've made progress in how I use my words Mostly because Jesus has helped me do that, but I've had, to, I've had to work at it. The sins of the tongue can be difficult to control. On top of that, in our culture, we tend to think the ways we sin with our words are kind of little sins. You know, the sexual sins, they grab all the headlines. But the ways we, we use our words can actually be pretty damaging as well. Even more damaging sometimes. James compares the tongue to a rudder on a ship or a spark that starts a forest fire. It's a small thing, but it can have a huge effect. And it's the same way with our tongue. It's a small thing, but it can have a huge effect. It has the power to bring life or to bring death to a marriage, to a friendship, to our children, to a church. Many people have been stabbed by their spouses with words that are sharper than any knife could be. And there are a lot of churches that have been torn to pieces by gossip and backbiting that have left people sliced and diced and bleeding for years. And some of you have come out of church experiences like that. And all of that is very different from how God uses his words. In the Bible, when God speaks, creation happens. God's word brings life. In the New Testament, God's word becomes flesh in Jesus Christ and he dies to reconcile us to God. God's word is redemptive. And we are made in God's image, but perhaps nowhere do we fall as far short of that image as in the ways we use our words. So let me give just take a few minutes here just to give a couple of examples of of how our tongue can be very destructive. And then I'll get a little more cheery and talk about how we can use our words to, to bring life and to bring hope and joy. But let's start with everyone's favorite sin, gossip. We are a nation of gossips. People magazine, entertainment tonight, we love gossip. Like a story I heard back in seminary about four pastors who decided that since they were always telling people to confess their sins and be healed, that they should do the same with each other. So they went into a private office and one pastor said, well, my sin is lust. It's just wrecking my life. The other pastor said, well, I've got a drinking problem. Third pastor said, I am just consumed by greed. We got to the fourth pastor and he said, I don't want to tell you what mine is. They said, oh, come on. We shared our secrets with you. You you got to do the same. So he said, okay, well, my sin is gossip and I can't wait to get out of here and tell what I just heard. (laughs) We love to gossip. And we kind of think of it as a little sin. Not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, gossip is a biggie. As I've said to you in the past, it's a little bit like murder, because it takes a lifetime to build a reputation. And if you steal that reputation from someone by gossiping, you've stolen a part of that person's life. I may have told you this before, but in my former church, a a rumor went around that I I never worked. Now, given that at the time I was continually breaking the fourth commandment and never taking a day off, this rumor was particularly irritating to, to me and to my wife. The reason people didn't think I worked was because I was never at the church. And the reason I was never at the church was because I was the college pastor. So I was always on the Stanford campus where the students were. But all of those gossipers just assumed the worst possible explanation, which is something we often do, isn't it? And then they just spread that rumor around and it was very destructive. It fed my workaholism because it felt like now I had to work even harder. To prove that I really wasn't lazy, it wounded my wife and it eroded community. Because it created this sense of distrust, and I, I felt like I wasn't being cared for, and, and I just didn't feel like I could trust anyone in that place for a while. Gossip can be very destructive. Another way our words wound is the labels we give each other. Because those labels can stick. And this goes all the way back to childhood. If you were called fatso or dummy or lazy or weak, that label sticks and often we begin to act according to the label that we've been given. Many of you may remember Karen Carpenter, who died of anorexia. There are a lot of causes for anorexia, but in her case, one of the causes was reading a review that referred to her as Richard Carpenter's chubby little sister. And that label stuck with her and drove a lot of her destructive behavior. The labels we give each other. James James says uh, the tongue is like a rudder, it can steer the course of a whole person's life. The labels we give each other can steer our lives. A third way our tongues can be destructive is complaining. I'm not talking about constructive criticism. That's necessary, that is valuable, but I'm I'm talking about constant nagging, complaining, especially over little things that don't really matter. It's toxic. If one member in a family is always complaining, or if in a church or an office is just filled with complainers, it poisons the atmosphere. That place becomes a very depressing place to be. So those are just some of the ways that our our words can wound. There are others lying, mocking others, talking too much. Right? If when you're talking on the phone, folks are going like this to you, there's a problem. Right. Words are potent. We can block a fist that's coming our way, but we cannot block gossip or a harsh thing that's said. And once it's out there, it's out there to stay. You can never take it back. So then how do we use our words in a way that brings life and brings joy? How do we use words right and how do we use them well? And how do we do that in a way that isn't phony or saccharine sweet, which which can sometimes be a problem in, in churches? When I was growing up, my parents had some friends who were really into positive thinking. They refused to say anything negative at all. So even if they had a cold, for instance, they wouldn't say that. They'd say, I have a warm instead. (laughs) Oh, please. I have a warm. Oh, please. I mean, surely that is not what James means. God does not want a bunch of phony saints running around. So how can our words be life-giving in an authentic way? couple of suggestions. Praise is a great use of our tongue. Last week in our modern worship services, we asked people to speak out just some of the ways that God had been at work in their life to give praise to God. And it was so encouraging to hear them as they spoke and go, wow, God is really on the move in this community. Praise for God is encouraging because it reminds us that God is good all the time. But praise for each other is also life-giving. We all know how good it feels to have someone praise us or encourage us. It is one of the best motivators there is in life. In fact, one of the things I just love about you as a congregation is that you are so affirming. And as a pastor, I appreciate that. Two months before our first child was born, Christina and I got a a puppy, which was the dumbest thing we ever did. (laughs) Nobody needs a brand new puppy and their first baby all at the same time. So we were trying to train this puppy before the baby was born, and we discovered pretty quickly that positive feedback, positive reinforcement worked a whole lot better than negative reinforcement. In fact, there's a lot of studies out there that show that what's true for puppies is also true for humans. Although we found the new baby a little more complex than a puppy, praising her and patting her on the head didn't make her wiggle around, and it certainly didn't make her sleep through the night. But to catch someone doing something right, Or to pass on the good things you hear about someone is way more motivating than criticism. Plus, it just feels better for us because if all of our words are negative and critical. We're going to start to feel grouchy and kind of negative after a while. But if some of our talk is positive, that's just going to feel better for us. A second life giving use of words is to rename people, give them a new label. You know, in the Bible, God renames Jacob, whose name means manipulator, which is pretty much how he acted, renames him Israel, which means he who strives with God. Jesus renamed Simon Peter, which means the rock, and after he did that, Peter began to act more rock like. The senior pastor I, I worked for in my former church changed my life by giving me a new label. He would always say to me, You're a leader. And I'd never seen myself that way before. And in fact, there were other people in my life who were saying, you're not a leader, but he would always say, look behind you. People are following you. You're a leader. And that changed the entire direction of my life. I never would have been a pastor had he not seen that in me and renamed me. Now, when we do that, it's got to be genuine, right? If he had said, Scott, you are the best basketball player since Michael Jordan. Okay, that dog won't hunt, right? It's got to be genuine. But when someone genuinely sees something authentic in us and renames us, that's powerful. A third life giving use of words is Thanksgiving. Let's be honest, it is kind of fun sometimes to complain, isn't it? I mean, it just sometimes kind of feels good, but over time that gets pretty depressing. But Thanksgiving brings us joy. In my former church, I remember one year where everything was just going awful. We're having to lay people off because we weren't meeting the budget and attendance was down and people were complaining about the music and it was too loud and all kinds of things. And, and I remember at one point we were in a meeting and we were focused on all of these difficult things and it just got oppressive in this meeting. Finally, one of our elders said, hey, why don't we list some good things that are happening? I mean, something good's got to be happening in this church. So we talked about a couple whose marriage had been healed. Someone mentioned an email they got where someone actually liked the sermon. You know, we talked about some of the mission trips we'd done. And as we did that, you could just feel this sense of relief in the room. I felt like I'd been walking across a hot asphalt parking lot when it was 95 degrees in Houston, wearing a black wool suit, and suddenly I just stepped into an air-conditioned room. It was such a relief. Thanksgiving focuses us on what's good, and that's a relief. Praise, rename people, thanksgiving, and finally, a fourth way we can use our tongues to bring life is not to use them at all. Be quiet. I recently saw a sign that said, light travels faster than sound. That's why some people appear wise until they open their mouths. There are times when it is best not to say anything at all. This week, I read a, a story about two men who were talking about where they came from. And one man said, I grew up in Toronto, land of beautiful hockey teams and homely women. The other man said, whoa, hey, my wife's from Toronto. And the first man said, and what hockey team did she play for? <laughs> have you ever said something you wish you never said? Because you shouldn't have? We all have, Right. I, mean, I, I think we should be like radio broadcasts. You know how most radio broadcasts have an eight-second delay button? If someone says something inappropriate, you can hit the button and bleep it out. I think God should have made us with an eight-second delay button. Right? You say something wrong, you just ooh, delete, delete, delete. Ever been talking smack about someone only to realize they're nearby and might have overheard? It's a sickening feeling, isn't it? Or ever lash out in anger and say things you wish you could take back because what you said was so hurtful to someone around you? As Proverbs 15 in the Bible says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a fool sends email. That's the Scott Dudley version. Sometimes the best use of our tongue is not to use them at all. Be quiet. Now, do do all of these good ways of using our words, does does that mean that we can never say anything negative at all, like my parents' friends who couldn't even say they had a cold? I don't think that's what God wants. You know, Jesus often told some pretty hard truths and used some pretty strong language. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. That's not nice. And he would frequently confront people on their sin and tell them to repent. But even when telling our truths, Jesus goal was always to help people become everything that God created them to be. So before we go saying something hard or saying something critical, we need to have a serious gut check with ourselves. Is my motivation anger or wanting to feel superior or do I genuinely want what's best for the other person? And since as Calvin says, the powers of self delusion are infinite probably good to check that out with someone else before we go critiquing another person. Before we say anything hard, I think we need to ask ourselves three questions. Is it true? Is it true? Is it necessary? Does it really need to be said? And is it helpful? Will it have a constructive purpose? Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it helpful? And if the answer to those three questions is an honest, yes, an honest, yes. Well, then you may need to say something hard to someone. Or use some strong language to make a point. But if you've answered those three questions correctly, it'll have a constructive purpose. Now, if you're like me, this passage and all of this stuff about taming the tongue, it sounds hard and it is. That's why in verse eight, James says no man can control his tongue. In other words, we cannot do this on our own. We need Jesus. Because the ultimate source of our destructive speech is our hearts. Jesus said it's out of the overflow of your hearts that you say the things you say, which I find a particularly challenging verse. Especially this week. I was when I was working on this sermon, my computer kept crashing and out of the overflow of my heart, I felt adjectives arising. (laughs) And then I remembered the topic of the sermon and pushed them back down. If I bump a cup of coffee, what's going to spill out? Coffee. Because that's what's in the cup. And if I if when I'm put under pressure, what comes out of my mouth is criticism or complaining or gossip or I mutter something under my breath, and that's what's in my heart, at least in part. So I don't need to control my tongue. I need heart surgery. And the only person who can give me a new heart is Jesus and his Holy Spirit. So I need a heart full of Jesus. And I know I say this every week, but I think it bears repeating. The way we get a heart full of Jesus is to connect to him through worship and prayer and scripture to learn to hear him speaking to us and hear the new names that he gives us supposed to the labels we've been given and then to experience his unconditional love and his forgiveness. You know, in this passage, James says we all blow it in this area. All of us blow it in this area. But we have a savior and his name is Jesus. And the Bible says that as far as east is from the West, that's how far he separates our sin from us. We all blow it, but we are forgiven. And if we know Jesus, transformation in this area is possible. I'm not perfect. I have a long way to go on this score, but I am a lot better off than I used to be because of Jesus. I can tell you the truth. Transformation is possible. And a heart full of Jesus will lead to speech that's more like Jesus. A couple of years ago, when I was new here, I was working really hard to learn how to be a senior pastor and hit a spell where I was kind of discouraged. And I was frustrated, particularly that I wasn't learning the management pieces faster. And I wanted to learn them faster than I was. And, and I was talking about this with one of my former students, a.k.a. Complaining. And I said, I, I am no good at this job. I am a lousy manager. I'm a lousy leader, lousy boss, blah, 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 blah. And he listened for a while and he said, whoa, Scott, you're kind of depressing here. And he said, look, I, I have read the entire Bible cover to cover and nowhere in scripture do I find the words manager or CEO or boss. But I do find the words pastor, shepherd, guide. And that's what you've been in my life. And I'm grateful that you've been in my life. And I believe that's who God is calling you to be for those people in your church in Bellevue. So go be that for them. And when he said that, I I felt this weight just lift off my shoulders. I I got this sense of hope. And I got a new vision for what God was asking me to do, that God was asking me to work hard to to be a competent manager, a good leader, and a great pastor. And that's what I'm trying hard. I want to learn how to do that. I hope someday I'm there. My friend's words were simple, quick, and so life-giving. Life-giving. He gave me a new name. He praised me. He rebuked the lies the devil was telling and I was believing. He also told some harsh truths. Dudley, stop feeling sorry for yourself. And then he offered thanksgiving. And the new words he gave me to replace the old words I was using gave me life and gave me hope and gave me joy. And I got to believe it was fun for him, too. Because if he would had joined me in complaining or criticizing or whatever, I don't think that's nearly as fun as being part of making a difference in someone's life. So how do you use your words? We all blow it, but Jesus forgives us. So this week, will you pray, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the ways I have misused my words. Help me this week to use words to build up and not to tear down. And then will you connect with Jesus so that your words eventually begin to become his words? Because, you know, Jesus said the coolest things. You know, he had this great sense of humor, but he never ran anyone down with it. He built people up. He always asked the greatest questions. Jesus was the most eloquent speech God ever made. The word of God made flesh. Jesus was God's articulate way of saying, I love you to the world. And a heart full of Jesus will lead to speech. Like Jesus, the psalmist says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. When we hide God's word in our heart, then our words begin to become God's words. And God's words always bring life and joy and hope to ourselves and to the people around us. So, Lord Jesus, we pray. That you would help us to hide you in our hearts, to hide your word in our hearts, so that our words become your words of healing, wholeness, and joy. Lord, we pray that you do this and do it in a way that you get the glory. We ask this in your name. Amen.